0: Hi, everybody, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Mark Greenberg. I direct the Human Services Initiative at the Migration Policy Institute. MPI's work addresses a broad range of immigration issues in the United States and around the world, and the Human Services Initiative focuses on immigration issues affecting families and children and humanitarian populations and the intersections of immigration with health and human services programs and policies. Today's webinar concerns how the child welfare system can better respond to needs of children from immigrant families, and I need to begin with a few housekeeping notes. First, if you have any technical problems during the webinar, please email to events at migrationpolicy.org, or you can call 202-266-1929. Second, we will have time for Q&A after the initial presentations. It won't be voice Q&A, so please type any questions into the Q&A box, or you can email them to events at migrationpolicy.org. You can submit your questions at any time while the speakers are presenting, or once the Q&A session begins. For today's webinar, we're very pleased to have participants from the American Public Human Services Association and three jurisdictions, South Carolina, New York City, and New Mexico. The states and New York City will be talking about their recent experiences and insights about improving services in the child welfare system for children with immigrant family members. In a few minutes, we'll turn to our state and city presenters But before doing so, I want to provide a few brief comments. Children of immigrants, like other children, can enter the child welfare system when there has been a substantiated allegation of parental abuse or neglect. Many issues relating to how the child welfare system operates are equally applicable to children of immigrants and other children. But there are also a set of very distinct issues and needs for children of immigrants, including but not limited to issues around the legal status of children, parents or other family members, language access, cultural competency, distinctive issues when parents or other family members are residing in other countries, or when parents or other family members are at risk of immigration enforcement or removal. And issues also are arising in the context of unaccompanied children released to parents or other adults in communities. MPI and APHSA have been working together on a range of immigration and child welfare issues since 2018. Initially, we engaged in a project that involved meeting with and interviewing state and local child welfare administrators, which led to a report we issued in 2019 called Immigrant Families and Child Welfare Systems, Emerging Needs and Promising Policy. We've continued working together since then, including in relation to a set of federal state coordination issues that have come to public attention about licensing of shelters and other facilities for unaccompanied children. And this year, we organized a roundtable of state and local administrators and did a set of interviews to explore recent and emerging issues for child welfare agency. We've drawn from this work and our discussions to develop an infographic, which is now available at both of our websites entitled Best Practices for Child Welfare and Working with Families with Immigrant Members. And you'll be able to see a link to it later. In our discussions with state and local administrators, we found that issues can be very different for jurisdictions with larger and smaller numbers of families with immigrant members, and quite different for jurisdictions near or far from the border. But there are a set of common questions and issues that all jurisdictions face. Among them, how to develop internal capacity within the child welfare agency to address the most common questions that emerge in cases and to have resources to turn to for the less common ones. How to ensure that a core set of issues are addressed in training for all staff with direct contact with families. So that even if caseworkers aren't specializing in immigration-related issues, they can identify when a case might present issues that require connecting with a specialist. And then how to have more intensive training for staff who will be working with families with immigrant members. How to develop effective screening mechanisms and legal service referrals, most obviously for special immigrant juvenile status, but also going beyond SIJ to a range of other immigration status issues. How to ensure the agency can effectively address situations when a parent or relative is in or expects to be in another country, how to address confidentiality, how to develop needed relationships with ICE for situations when parents are in immigration, detention, or facing removal. In our work, we found enormous variation between jurisdictions. Some jurisdictions have specialized staff. Others don't. Some have significant staff training. Many others do not. Um, some have comprehensive screening for immigration status. Others don't. Um, some have developed arrangements for addressing cases when parents or caretakers are in immigration detention. And again, significant variation across jurisdictions. jurisdiction. And even in the jurisdictions, That have done the most to develop policies and practices, Uh, they are continuing to refine their practices over time. So in today's webinar, we'll highlight the experience of two states with different contexts and experiences along with the experience of New York City. We hope that states and counties and other stakeholders will find the infographic and the related resources as helpful to them as they ask where they might strengthen policy and practice. And we encourage listeners in the call who are aware of promising practices in their state of locality to reach out to us and share that with us. And now I would like to turn to Ann Flagg, the Senior Director of Policy and Practice at APHSA, who will offer some additional overview comments and then introduce our speakers. Ann.
1: Thanks so much, Mark. Um, We sincerely appreciate this opportunity to continue to partner with MPI to advance policy solutions and equitable um, practices and services for immigrant families, particularly those involved in both the child welfare and immigration uh, systems. So before I jump in, uh, for those who aren't familiar, the American Public Human Services Association, or APHSA, is the bipartisan National Membership Association, representing state and local health and human services agencies, and supporting them to execute their mission to improve outcomes for people nationwide. Building on our longstanding relationships with health and human services leaders, we focus on generating pragmatic solutions that advance the well being of individuals, families, and communities. Through our affinity group, the National Association of Public Child Welfare Administrators. We've worked to improve programs and service delivery for all families engaged in the child welfare and human services systems, but specifically uh, immigrant families by increasing visibility of this issue in communities, elevating state and local innovative practices that advance equity. and and support child and family well-being and developing and aggregating best practice guides and tools for child uh, child welfare organizations. No matter where a child or family lives or where they come from, system leaders are responding to the imperative to build tools in their practice and policy toolbox to provide prevention services, prevent out of home placements, use culturally informed practice models that meet the needs of children and and their families, and build um, build care and family support options for um, children that ensure cultural connections and permanency for kids who come to the attention of the child welfare system. What we know is this, um, more than a fourth of all children in the US are uh, children of immigrants and nearly a third of children experiencing poverty are children of immigrants. Uh, we recognize that the risk for uh, children uh, living in poverty, families experiencing poverty to come to the attention of the child welfare system is heightened based on just poverty as a single risk factor. So recognizing all of these risk factors that poverty uh, can create for family involvement and child welfare system, it's critical that state and local agencies continuously leave review and practice strategies to ensure uh, quality services to families with an immigration experience. More specifically, we know that 6 million kids in this country have at least one unauthorized parent, and data from 2019 indicated removal of 28,000 immigrants who claimed a U.S. citizen child. The alignment across human services, judiciary and child welfare and immigration enforcement systems are critical to supporting the best possible outcomes for families duly involved in these systems. Uh, MPI and APHSA have worked to identify the key levers within child welfare system that Mark so beautifully laid out and, and you know they, the range, organizational structure, practice and process questions, staff training, and developing relationships with key external partners like consulates, attorney and legal resources, consulates to name a few. Uh, so we are really, really excited to bring to you you know both the sort of culmination of the findings as well as some sort of new best practices we've discovered um, you know over the the course of the last few months. Um, so we have uh, you know the speakers really represent. A lot of different points uh, along the journey of building capacity to to better serve families engaged in these systems. Uh, As I said, we've had the honor to learn from a few, like New York City, who've really been um, developing this practice model for quite some time, as well as uh, some sort of uh, uh, more evolving practices, like we'll hear from from South Carolina. Uh, So each of these systems are really distinctive in their demographics, population size, organizational structure. And then we, we hope that each of them uh, will offer something for each of you to take away and, and apply in your own, your own systems and communities. So with that, I'll uh, introduce our speakers. Um, first up, uh, we're gonna hear from the state of South Carolina. So we have Lisa Armstrong. Uh, Lisa serves as the statewide education and non-citizen advocate for the child health and well being team of the South Carolina Department of Social Services. She is a former trial and appellate attorney who represented indigent and private clients, as well as serving as the guardian uh, ad litem in family court. Um, in September, 2018, Lisa began serving as the director of the Foster Care Review Board of South Carolina, where she stayed until joining the well-being team. And she'll be joined by Dennis Merrick. Uh, Dennis is the assistant general counsel for the South Carolina Department of Social Services and has worked with the department for 10 years. Next, we'll hear from New York City. Uh, Elian Martiz serves as the Director of Immigrant Services and Language Affairs for the New York City Administration of Children's Services, which works to ensure that all ACS programming is inclusive and accessible to immigrant and limited English proficient New Yorkers. She has served in this role for over three years. Then we're gonna pop across the country to our colleagues in New Mexico. Uh, we were uh, intending to have two speakers today. I'm gonna to introduce them both. Um, but we did have a a little bit of uh, an emergency. And so we're down to one speaker, but for the purposes of having all of the resources, um, all of the resources uh, that built this work known to the audience today, we'll go ahead and introduce introduce them both. So joining us today um, is Andres Santiago. He is the immigration attorney with the New Mexico Department of Children, Youth and Families working to support immigrant and refugee children across the state. Um, Megan fino Velasquez uh, is the director of the New uh, New Mexico Department of Children, Youth, and Families, and Megan's also an associate professor and director of the Center on Immigration and Child Welfare in the School of Social Work at New Mexico State University. Megan, unfortunately, did have to to, uh, uh, leave the meeting for today. uh, if there are any particular questions, she did welcome um, welcome us collecting them for um, for Team New Mexico and sharing back any uh, follow up, as is helpful. So uh, with that, I think I can turn it on over to Team South Carolina.
2: Technology. Um, hey, guys, I am Dennis Kimmerich, and I am the managing attorney for county operations uh, for DSS here in South Carolina. Welcome. Uh, to everybody today. Uh, It's my pleasure to talk with you about South Carolina's experience when it comes to this population of children. As you can imagine, we are one of those small jurisdictions that Ann and Mark referred to when it came to uh, immigration issues and how we've dealt with it. Um, I have been in the Office of General Counsel now since 2011. Prior to that point in time, I was a prosecuting attorney for the department. Uh, I have been with the agency now for 23 years. One of the um, issues that was assigned to me when I first got to the office of general counsel was, how do we deal with uh, children who are entering foster care who has immigration issues? South Carolina, we had just gone through a couple of of cases that had some really um, not good outcomes for the children that we were dealing with because of their immigration status. We were having TPR, uh, termination parental rights actions, uh, and their related adoptions action got to go sideways because we weren't really paying attention to immigration issues. So one of the things I was tasked with uh, when I first got here was coming up with a policy as it pertains to these immigration children and what our procedure should be. Now, for South Carolina, that really meant about a population of between 10 to 15 kids in the entire foster care system at that point in time. Um, it really had not, we really did not have a large population to deal with. So I felt pretty comfortable in, okay, this is just another part of my job. Um, I, I partnered with um, an, an attorney with the Apple Seeds, which is our legal service organization here in South Carolina. I also partnered with an, uh, an outstanding individual with the uh, South Carolina Immigrant Victim Network, or SC uh, uh, Van, uh, Tricia Raven, who some of y'all may have dealt with her. She is like the expert in South Carolina as it came to immigration issues. And we developed a fairly straightforward flowchart of how we were going to deal with children that came into the foster care system that had immigration issues. We modified our 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 SACWIS system as far as being able to identify the system. A report was able to be run once a month to, um, in order to identify. And so, and we came up with a policy that basically said that, you know, okay, I'm going to start tracking these kids. I'm just going to add it to my job. It's not that many kids. Uh, we developed a statewide training program that went well. And every three months, I pull my list of kids, go through it, and, you know, say, okay, I need either needed to talk with the county staff as far as what's happening with the child or what's not happening with the child. And like I said, we had a small population and these kids that we were dealing with were what we would traditionally call you know, the straightforward abuse and neglect kids. You know, They were children that had suffered some sort of physical abuse, sexual abuse. So it kind of was just kind of like a normal course of action with these immigration issues thrown in. But we felt pretty comfortable that we had a, a way to do it. Fast forward five years ago, And our population, and and our minds, exploded. Uh, We began to have, instead of the 14, the 15, the 16 kids that I was used to working with, we were now having 50 kids plus under the foster care system that had immigration issues. And for those of you who work for human welfare service agencies, you know jobs descriptions, they kind of expanded. So I had more jobs duties that were assigned to me than and no no job duties taken away from me. So with immigration, um, we began to have a conversation in-house and with our external partners that we really needed to have a dedicated person to really deal with this issue. Enter stage left six months ago, Lisa Armstrong, who is our advocate. Lisa, I'm gonna turn it over to you at this point.
3: Thank you, Dennis. And um, thank you for the invitation. I'm so glad to be here today. And as uh, Dennis said, I've been here since May, or I've been here six months. And when I came in, Dennis um, handed me his materials and offered to um, be a, um, a source of discussion about what was out there. But otherwise, um, my job was to essentially help to create um, greater capacity internally and to essentially help case managers when they got a non-citizen case. Um, South Carolina still does not have um, nearly the number of other states. So even though our case managers are trained specifically on immigration matters, they, they try to um, identify our non-citizen children and youth, um, they're certainly not specialists, nor do they have, frankly, the, the ability to be because their chances of getting a non-citizen case are about one out of a hundred. So it's a fairly rare um, thing for one, uh, for one of the case managers to get a non-citizen client. So um, in addressing some of the, um, the issues that were um, mentioned earlier, uh, the policies and practices essentially became my first, essentially my first task. We needed to work on making sure that our policies were up to date and to develop some practices that would work to, the, to further providing for non-citizen children and youth. And one of the biggest problems in the past was that there wasn't someone who had the time to devote to this population. So I have a dual role with education and non-citizen issues. And it's really a, a great combination because our non-citizens end up having unique educational needs as well. So I'm, I'm dealing with both of those issues. But one of the things we have done is in my role, I offer hands-on assistance to case managers. We ask case managers upon identifying a non-citizen case to staff that case with the full team early on. We need to make sure the consulate gets their notice within that five days. We need to make sure that we can identify um, a location if there is a parent out of the country. We need to make sure that we know how to get in touch with them. You know, our job is not to um, keep children necessarily in in the country indefinitely. We need to make sure that our case management is reflective of the facts and what is in the best interest of that child. So if there's a parent out of the country, we need to make sure we're in touch with that parent. We need to make sure that we're doing our jobs as child welfare professionals, not just simply looking at the immigration aspect. We need to look at it as a whole. So part of what I do is make sure that those connections are kept current, that we have that type of information and to make sure that the case managers have it so that they can do the connecting between the parents and the child. Um, as part of that, Dennis was looking at cases every three months, but because of my role being more um, specific to immigration, I'm looking monthly at each of these cases. We have a spreadsheet, which initially I created that was very skeletal. It now contains a section for, for things like child health and well-being. Essentially, you know, are we um, seeing anything about the child's functioning or their Uh, progress that suggests that we need to do more for that child, Um, not just following their legal situation and their immigration concerns, but also their overall health and well-being. So in these monthly staffings, we have case managers. Uh, Oftentimes, I will talk to the clinical teams that deal with psychological issues and psychiatric, as well as other um, health needs, and all of this is done on a master index, which um, is available actually. I, it's now being provided to our clinical team so they can take a look at the special population and just keep it fresh in their minds that th- this is a group that if they're hearing about these particular children, they may wanna you know, be especially attentive. They may have some, some special needs so that when they're doing their staffings clinically, they, they bear that in mind. Um, the other thing that we try to keep up with are things like benefits if um, if a child is eligible for an siJs we want to make sure that we, we identify that early that we get them what they're entitled to um, we get the, those applications filed one of the things we don't want to do is miss an opportunity if a child is eligible for a status adjustment and as Dennis said if you're you know if you don't have a well-crafted system that that can happen um, I am pleased to announce that <laughs> that recently one of the first cases we had was a child who came into care um, 17 and a half years old, pregnant, the idea was to reunify. Somehow for a variety of reasons that went south, but because we had great outside support from the immigration attorneys who were very supportive of what we're trying to do for our, our non-citizen population, we had a wonderful immigration attorney that was, eligible, was able to get this child in the SIJS pipeline and beat that deadline. So that was, that was huge. So as far as the policies and practices and what difference it makes, um, I really think the early, the early identification is huge. You know These are time sensitive cases and um, we don't want anybody to miss out on the opportunity to have an adjustment of status if we can give that to them. Uh, the other uh, point that I would make as far as the difference is that multidisciplinary team approach we wanna make sure we're not just making sure that they're being uh, communicated with the correct language, but also that we're meeting their overall health and well-being. And I believe my time is up. So thank you very much for letting me speak. Um, so my name is Elian Moritz and I'm
4: the Director of Immigrant Services and Language Affairs for New York City. Um, I think you can all see now. Uh, So the New York City Administration for Children's Services is the child welfare agency for the five boroughs of New York City. Um, We cover a lot of different areas, including child protection investigations. Um, We offer um, prevention services. We have our family permanency services, which contracts with nonprofit agencies for foster care services. And we also do juvenile justice and early childhood. So um, it was really interesting to hear from South Carolina and and kind of development of the immigrant service office there. And I think it it followed a similar trajectory here at ACS before I came on, Um, but now our office is a standalone office that's um, entirely dedicated to immigrant services and language affairs. So we're within the division of external affairs and we cover two subject areas, language access programs and immigration programs. Um, So here's just a a small sample of the type of work that we can do. We help write agency policies on these topics. We give tons and tons of trainings. Um, we provide case consultations, um, quality assurance. We do UNT visa certifications and community engagement partnerships. We also have our immigration services for youth and care program, which I'll be telling you about today. Um, so, uh, you know, as Mark said, different jurisdictions have different uh, immigrant populations. New York City is absolutely the city of immigrants. We're very proud of our immigrant population. Um, generally speaking, about 36% of New York City total population are immigrants. Um, and this statistic is always very interesting to me, at least about 60% of New York City children live in a household with at least one immigrant family member. Um, so this is the majority of New York City children, um, immigration is going to come into their lives. And 22% of all New Yorkers are limited English proficient. So they need interpretation or translation services. Um, so, and I'm talking about two main parts of our immigration support for our, the families we work with. We have a dedicated program called Immigration Services for Youth and Care, which I'll talk a little bit about. And we also provide um, immigration support and case consultations for ACS-involved families. So the, uh, the Immigration Services for Youth and Care program, ISYC, uh, was started um, in, in response to a local law that was passed about the need to ensure that we were meeting the immigration needs of all youth who are coming into foster care. And then that was mirrored with a look with a policy that the agency wrote. So the policy states that all youth who come into ACS foster care who are not US citizens need to be identified and referred for immigration legal services. Um, why? Um, well, we say that this is um, you know it's not only good practice, but it is integral to the permanency. Planning for any youth. So if we're looking at um, ensuring that youth can have access to services, resources, and opportunities that enable them to live independent, productive lives after leaving foster care, um, they need to be able to get the best immigration status possible. Um, there's various areas this touches, that, um, in particular, um, when applying for housing after leaving foster care, uh, many uh, youth want to go into public housing, such as NYCHA housing, um, they need to have lawful status, um, education, if they want federal financial aid, work authorization, um, many types of health insurance. So um, if we are being responsible about ensuring that the youth leaving care are getting the best um, services and supports that they need, we need to make sure that they are on their path to getting legal status. Um, so this is a huge undertaking. Um, you know, we, we work with a lot of different um, partners here. So we have the ACS immigrant service, Immigration Services for Youth and Care program at the center. We work with um, other ACS divisions. We work with the 27 or so foster care agencies that we contract with. And then the immigration legal service providers. So these are nonprofits that are largely city funded, city or federally funded for immigration legal support or um, have other sources of funding. And they provide free pro bono um, immigration legal help for our youth. Um, so the Immigration Services for Youth and Care program oversees uh, foster care agencies efforts to assist the immigrant uh, youth and children who come into care. We also provide training to all the foster care immigration liaisons, which I'll tell you more about in a second. We also assist on individual cases. There are some cases that uh, prevent, uh, you know, present complex needs and we always help with those. And then we also, um, you know, as, North, as, as South Carolina was saying, track and monitor the progress of all these cases to make sure that they're moving along and um, the youth are getting the support that they need. So um, a really key part of this process is what our immigration liaisons. So every one of the foster care agencies that we work with is required to have a dedicated immigration liaison. And the immigration liaison is a point person for our program and all the other collaborative partners. And they are the in-house resource and coordinator on immigration issues. They are the ones that are doing the reports to ensure that um, the cases are moving along, that we review. um, And they also can answer questions about other um, immigration needs. We work with immigration legal service providers, as I mentioned. Um, So these are all um, nonprofits in New York City who provide immigration legal help um, more generally, but as part of their help, they also provide um, free immigration legal help for our youth in foster care and they get specialized training about working with youth in foster care, because that can be different than um, the, uh, the experience of working with other, um, other populations. They um, are the only ones who uh, file the immigration um, applications and documentation. They are the ones who are checking on the case with the, um, with the government. They are the ones providing immigration advice. We always say only um, ask for immigration advice from the legal service provider and um, they can represent the youth in front of the immigration court or the federal government more generally. So the goal here is that we want um, every youth who comes into care uh, who, and every immigrant youth should leave for the strongest immigration status that they're eligible. Um, so I'll, I'll make a note that this is not just um, you know, special immigrant juvenile status. Our goal is um, to help them get their green card or if they already have a green card, we wanna make sure that they, um, if they're eligible for citizenship that they, we help them apply for citizenship. Um, and if they um, are eligible for citizenship, will uh, ACS will pay for the immigration related fees. Um, and we also will help uh, pay for the fees of the medical exam or anything um, related to their immigration process. Um, here in New York City, youth can stay in, um, in care until 21, um, but they may also um, be allowed to stay in care past 21 if they are waiting for their green card to become current and they can't uh, apply for housing otherwise. Um, so if that is the barrier to getting housing, um, they can stay in care until they can get their green card. Um, we also provide other forms of immigration support for ACS-involved families more generally. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about those. Um, ACS uh, issues U visa certifications, um, you know, technically U non-immigrant status certifications. So since we are a child protective services agency and we conduct investigations, We can certify um, a a use certification for victims of certain crimes who have cooperated with investigation. Um, This is really uh, a very important tool in building trust with our um, undocumented community. Um, Many uh, undocumented immigrants are fearful of working with um, local government and um, by allowing them to apply for the U visa uh, -Visa application, They uh, are given a benefit as well for cooperating with our investigation. Um, And it's also um, helpful for families to get on the path to lawful status. It makes them eligible for benefits that could support family stability. Um, We also provide um, an array of other services. Uh, Case support is a huge one. We um, field questions every single day from um, all different parts of the agency and caseworkers and and leadership about um, how to help uh, support uh, cases where there are complicated immigration needs, um, we also can you know explain changes in immigration law. Um, I put public charge here as an example. This was um, a huge, uh, a, you know, a huge question for a lot of our frontline staff because um, we were finding that um, many immigrant families were scared to get referrals for services that was necessary for their um, child welfare case, and um, so was trying to understand why you know why we saw that change, um, and so explaining. Um, what the public charge actually meant, and how to refer um, families to um, uh, immigration help if they had questions about it. Um, we also provide uh, many, many trainings about working with immigrant families, um, both about you know understanding immigration law, but also about cultural sensitivity and responsiveness, understanding how to be um, you know work in a trauma-informed way when working with immigrant families. Um, we also uh, do a lot of community engagement and working groups with different advocates and nonprofits in New York City. Um, we coordinate with the New York City Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs, who is an incredible partner in supporting immigrant families in New York City. They're a huge resource and wealth of information and they work with all city agencies. Um, and then in addition to that, as I mentioned, we also do um, the language access contract management and policy. So uh, we have uh, contracts with different interpretation and translation vendors. We have policies about um, ensuring that all limited English proficient clients receive adequate interpretation and translation services and um, that's a major part of what we do. Okay, I think I'm up with my time. So do you want to share?
5: Well, good afternoon, everyone. And thank you for joining today. My name is Andres Santiago. I am an immigration attorney here at New Mexico Children, Youth, and Families Department. Uh, I was to be joined today by the Director of Immigration Affairs by Governor Velasquez, unfortunately. Uh, she had an emergency and is unable to join us today. Uh, next, next slide, please. Thank you. Um, so who, who are we? We are a mighty, mighty team of four. Uh, our director is is Megan Finno Velasquez. She came on to the, uh, she, she really formed the immigration unit in 2019. Prior to 2019, from about 2009 through about 2016, there was a liaison for uh, the Children Youth and Families Department here in New Mexico. Um, unfortunately, after 2016, there were a couple years where that, that position went unfilled. Uh, so with the addition of the uh, Director of Immigration Affairs in 2019, um, the Child Welfare Agency very much tried to focus on this population of non-citizens being a border state. Um, In 2019, by the end of that year, an immigration specialist was hired for protective services. Um, This individual is just, I can't even tell you enough about her, uh, but she has a long, a long, long, lots of experience in in child welfare and at the intersection with immigration. Um, She is mainly responsible for transnational services, our concert notifications, on the on the uh, protective services side. And also she helps to facilitate communication with with parents in in home countries if there is a parent in a home country. Um, in 2020, I was born an immigration attorney um, in, in my role. I, I have a couple different things that I do. I, I do work with frontline staff on cases where there is a non citizen, child, youth or, or family member. Um, For the children or youth, we are able to directly screen for those, and I'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, For the families, uh, whether it's a parent, whether it may just be a family member who who has uh, some immigration complications, our unit is is able to connect those family members with nonprofits, um, mostly within the state of New Mexico, to assist with any immigration complications in 2021 we were able to add a position for an immigration specialist for our juvenile justice services Uh, here in new mexico the child welfare agency does not prosecute these cases that's our district attorney's office public defender is the one who who will uh defend the the juvenile for any uh, adjudication but the child welfare agency is involved if if the juvenile is um, committed to a facility or if that juvenile is, is later put on probation. And so the, the immigration specialists, similar to uh, on the juvenile justice side, similar to the immigration specialist on the protective services side, um, will notify the consulate uh, of that non citizen youth. Uh, we also notify if there is a non, if there's a US citizen youth, but one of the parents um maybe maybe from a, a foreign country. Um, we will provide direct screenings for juveniles if if they so choose. Uh, we also connect uh, public defenders with immigration practitioners who are able to analyze any juvenile charges or juvenile pleas. Uh, next slide please. So who do we serve here in New Mexico? Well, as probably is no surprise to anyone, uh, we we serve immigrant and mixed status families here in New Mexico who are involved with state child welfare and or the juvenile justice system. Now, interestingly, uh, interesting to me, when I first entered this role, I I thought that there was gonna be a lot of family separation involvement. And that's really not the case in New Mexico. A lot of these cases uh, that we see are the result of abuse or, or neglect allegations. Um, There there may be deportation orders present uh, within the immigration history of the family, and this can sometimes complicate relief options for family members as we're making those referrals to to some of the nonprofits. Many families have one one parent who is in a home country and another parent who is in the United States. Um, Our unit will help facilitate some of that communication with Uh, parents who were outside of the United States. Um, More recently, we have seen, um, unfortunately, an uptick in in children who are both victims of of labor trafficking and and commercial sex trafficking. Um, For those that that may not know, New Mexico, we are a border state. We do do border Texas on the one side and we border Arizona on the other. Uh, We have seen an uptick with labor trafficking in regards to of uh, children who are given documentation showing they're over the age of 18 and they're forced to work on dairy farms in, in rural areas, rural parts of the state. In, in regards to the commercial sex trafficking that we've seen, uh, a lot of times, this is not commercial sex trafficking for, for a monetary value or anything like that. It's, it's typically for protection, it's for housing, it's for food, it's to pay off a of debt. Um, It's a little bit different in in regards to that. that Here in New Mexico, we do report any suspicion of uh, commercial sex trafficking or labor trafficking within 24 hours uh, to the Office of Trafficking in Persons, which is uh, federally under Health and Human Services. Uh, Next slide, please. So this is just an an overview slide of of what we do. As I mentioned, we, we consult on cases involving immigrant families similar to the other presenters on the call, we really try to identify these cases as early as possible so that they can be screened. And if, if a child or a youth or a family member may be eligible for an immigration benefit for the family member, we're going to refer them to nonprofits. For that child or youth, we want to see if we're going to move forward and be able to directly represent, we typically do not directly represent, but we do assist with getting those predicate orders for a special immigrant juvenile status. Um, we, we are exploring at this point, um, a U certification certification. We also, as I stated, uh, we do concert notifications. We are uh, the liaison for foreign country consulates, which we work with very closely. Uh, we even have a memorandum of understanding with the Mexican consulate. Um, we assist with communicating to relatives in foreign countries, as I've already said. We do uh, provide translation services, uh, which means we have a contract with a a third party to translate documents, not just into Spanish, but into other languages as well. Um, We we can represent on a case-by-case basis for children. Uh, We do consult uh, and we do report federally uh, human trafficking, suspicion of human trafficking. And we also collaborate with community-based immigrant-serving organizations. Uh, Next slide, please. We also have worked very closely uh, at large with the Child Welfare Agency uh, to uh, license non-citizen relatives to become resourced parents and provide them them with uh, training and support. Uh, We had to update policy around special juvenile status to align the language with current federal standards and law. We've updated our policies about, around suspected trafficking so that our unit is reporting any, suspicious, any suspicion of trafficking. We've also updated our, um, our processes in regards to concert notifications so that we're ensuring those concert notifications are typically going out in about 24 hours uh, for when child is coming into the custody of child welfare agency. Uh, we had to update our communication with uh, Department of Homeland Security. A number of our counties do border uh, Mexico. And we, we had to ensure that we had sort of one point of contact for Department of Homeland Security, which can include uh, all kinds of whether it's Border Patrol, whether it's ICE, uh, whether it's Health and Human Services on the other end, uh, you know, we had to have one point of contact for that. And then lastly, uh, language access plan was also uh, rolled out. Next slide, please. And some of the complications that we've seen, um, as, as many may already be aware, in regards to special immigrant juvenile status, Uh, the population that we serve here in New Mexico, many of the children and youth are from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And unfortunately for these countries in particular, there is a longer wait time to move forward with residency because there's a backlog on the number of visas. And so similar to uh, our our, our colleagues uh, from New York and and from South Carolina, we have had to uh, monitor these on a monthly basis as well to, to see when we can move forward or when we can recommend to move forward for residency. A number of our children and youth are in deportation proceedings, which can complicate immigration relief. We do work very closely with uh, Department of Homeland Security, with with ICE trial attorneys to try to negotiate out our children from some of their cases if they are in deportation proceedings. Many of these children have been identified as victims of trafficking or um, are um, eligible for special immigrant juvenile status. And we try to uh, negotiate with ICE in regards to those cases, if uh, ICE is unwilling to move forward, then, then we do refer out to a nonprofit. And lastly, uh, reentry after deportation. Um, and this is for, for the parents. Sometimes parents who have orders of deportation, they come back into the United States, and then they're criminally prosecuted for illegal reentry to the United States uh, with an order of deportation, which can lead to um, months, if not years, incarcerated. Um, and I believe my time is up, so I, I'm gonna go ahead and, and stop there.
0: Thank you um, very, very much to our, our, our panelists. Um, uh, you have uh, uh, provided a, a lot for people to, uh, to think about and learn from in, in your presentations. We've got a number of questions. Uh, we'll In the remaining time, we'll go through as many questions as we can. Um, if you're not yet in the queue for your questions, um, you can use the q and function to write questions. Um, you can also use chat, but if everybody would try to use Q&A, that helps us keep them all in one place. You can also email events at migrationpolicy.org with your questions, or you could tweet your questions uh, to at migrationpolicy, hashtag MPI discuss. We've had some questions just about uh, whether the PowerPoints will be Available and the powerpoints and audio will be available at the MPI website tomorrow. And with that, uh, let's start going into some questions. The several people asked questions about language access, and among the questions, one person asked about what measures or standards do you use in relation to interpretation and translation? There was a question about monolingual Spanish speakers. There was also a question about um, speakers of languages other than English and Spanish. So let me open this up to the panelists and any of you or all of you uh, are welcome to comment on this one if you'd like. Uh,
4: I'm I'm happy to answer that's helpful um, so uh, as I mentioned during my presentation our office also covers uh, immigration our, our language access services so this is um, this is a major part of what we do day to, day in and day out um, so I can only speak for our agency but we have um, we have a language access policy which describes best practices around language access and we're operating under a federal, state and local law, all of which um, require us to provide um, equal access to limited English proficient families. And um, we do this through a a variety of ways. Um, Bilingual staff at the agency can get certified so that they can work directly in other languages. Or we can also, we have several different vendors that we work with um, to provide either in-person, video remote or on-demand uh, telephonic interpretation. Um, and those are available in hundreds of languages. Um, so that's um, that's how we provide uh, language access services. I don't know if that answers the question.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, any, anybody else want to comment on that one?
5: I'll, I'll just quickly add that um, we also, as as a, Eliana said, "From New York, um, we, we do those as those things as well. In addition to that, we also have a third-party contract for translation of documents uh, to ensure that documents are readily available in in languages other than other than English. We have used this from everything uh, from from the, the Navajo language to um, to languages other than other than Spanish."
3: I was going to say, we we also in South Carolina we have a list of um, vendors, but. Uh, one of the things that's happened is we try to make sure that we understand where exactly the child is from, which part of the country, because what we have found is that, unfortunately, especially when you're dealing with such a small number, there's just kind of an assumption that, um, or there has been an assumption, It's not not so much anymore, we're trying to sort of stamp that out, but that um, if they don't speak English and they're from a a country that is believe to be Spanish speaking, that they must speak Spanish, and that is oftentimes not true. So we're, we we try to be mindful of that and really drill down as much as we can to figure out where they are, and then we have people in the community that will help us figure out what the, the language likely is and then go from there. And oftentimes, we can get it that way.
0: Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we then got a couple of questions which are sort of about um, what more can you say to describe the children? And in particular, one person asked what about ages? Uh, One person asked how many of the cases involve recently arrived children versus non-citizen children who've been in the country for some time versus U.S. citizen children of uh, non-citizen parents or legal guardians, and This is an area where uh, there is not federal data to help us understand the answers to this question. So I uh, welcome if any of the panelists feel you can better uh, describe the children based upon what you've seen.
3: I will say that recently, um, there have been a number of cases that have come across um, my desk that seem to involve children (laughs) who are being uh who have been victimized as um victims of uh labor trafficking and i feel like this is one of those you know they're 10 to 14 to 15 they're not in school um they're living in areas you know where they're sort of kept out of uh you know uh, a, a lot of people's sight and so that, though, that age range seems to have been, um, it, it seems to be occurring more often. And I think that you know one of the things we've talked about is needing to be uh, especially careful to try to identify those. I mean, we have screening for human trafficking, but um, I feel like it's one of those areas that may be growing in South Carolina that we need to be um, you know sort of more aware of it.
2: Yeah, and, and I would probably add, if not necessarily growing in South Carolina, we're just becoming more aware of it, um, you know, in addition to our immigration policy, we recently revamped our trafficking policy. And, you know, as is often the case sometimes, you know, when you really start looking and digging, um, you, you, you discover that there's a, a big chunk of issues you may have missed. Because we do have a fairly strong um, migrant population when it, because we're, we're a fairly um, agricultural state. And so it's not unusual, you know, come March and April, we're in it's time to pick peaches, that you know there's a huge migrant population.
4: Um, yeah. I think I'm you sorry, know. Oh, sorry. I think you know, New York City, um, because just of the general immigrant population that we work with, um, we see all all sorts of variety um, in the uh, immigrant youth who come into foster care. So, um, you know, we'll have some cases where um, you know at, at first the child you know themselves might think that they were born here and only after looking into it a little bit more we realize that the child is actually um, you know was born abroad and is undocumented and the child didn't know then we'll have and we definitely have cases of, of recently arrived uh, uh, children or you know young adults as well um, we have uh, some youth who came through you know office of refugee resettlement as unaccompanied minors we have um, all, all, you know, some who've come to, s- to study here, you know, all, all sorts of different cases and from all sorts of different parts of the world. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, it, it, the question was like did more recently arrived or, or youth who have been here for a while. I think it's a real mix, at least in New York City.
5: Next. I'll just, I'm
0: sorry, go ahead, Andres. Thank you.
5: Um, I just wanted to add that similarly here, it's it's a mix of ages. Um, I will echo what South Carolina has said though, that with trafficking specifically, it's, it seems to be a very specific age range, uh, more towards labor trafficking than commercial sex trafficking. That being said though, being a border state, we, we have run into um, youth who thought they were US citizens and, and, and are not. Um, so we, we, it's been a range of ages.
0: Thank you. We've got a question about are there times where there are tensions between the goal and focus on permanency in child welfare and the particular circumstances in an immigration case? And uh any of you care to comment on that? Yeah,
2: so. I I would have to say, well, what I am saying that, you know, we as a child welfare agency, sometimes we forget what our primary job is, and that is to reunify children with um, parents, regardless of where that parent may be located. And I don't know if other states are experiencing this, but there is sort of that natural bias, at least here in South Carolina, that certainly it's in a child's best interest to remain here. Uh, in America, as opposed to maybe being reunified with any family in um, another country, and you know, our foster some of our placements are very aggressive when it comes to explaining to the court or trying to explain to the court as to why it's in a child's best interest to remain here with a new family as opposed to being reunited with their biological family.
0: A a next question um, is for states that may be struggling to convince child welfare agency leaders or human service agency leaders to invest in resources and staff to focus on these issues. So, What arguments did you find were most convincing to get the resources that you needed to get your program started and developed? Or what would your advice be sort of more broadly to another stage or a county that is trying to decide whether to commit resources in this direction.
4: This is such a good um, this is a good question. And um, so I, you know, I came into the office once it was already established, but I know that um, it was originally started with the, um, you know, with with the pressure from from advocates and the immigrant community organizations here in New York City. Um, and now that we have the office, um, you know, we are so busy, and I can't imagine. How um, you know how child welfare agencies can operate without having an office uh, that focuses on these issues? But you know what we always explain is that um, immigration status is an integral part of permanency planning. It is an integral part of uh, understanding what is in the best interest of the child and ensuring that they get supports and access to resources. Um, so if you have you know if you are if you are a child welfare agency that is operating in the United States. You are going to encounter immigrant youth, our youth who have immigrant parents, um, and you need to be prepared to support those youth. Um, so, uh, I, I highly recommend that um, that every agency uh, build up this, that, uh, you know, this this capacity and expertise as much as they can. Um, I'm curious to hear what the other states would say.
5: In New Mexico, I mean, I similarly came on when the unit was already coming together and formed. Um, but what I have found in in my time here is just data collection is what's really helped us you know being able to point to hey there's x number of non-citizen children there's x number of, of files that involve a non-citizen parent and this is the number that also have deportation proceedings this is the number that are sij eligible this is tied in with permanency um, that has really opened a uh, I would say we've gotten more buy-in from internally from, from within the child welfare agency. I feel uh, immigration can be a very niche area. And if you don't know it, it can just seem complicated and just seem like, oh, that's, that's something I, I maybe should worry about, but I don't have the time to worry about it. So we've had to partner with our frontline staff, show them that we're here to support them and support these families in the goal towards permanency. And, and that's really worked with sort of being
3: data-driven. Well, and <clears throat> excuse me, um, I- Obviously, in South Carolina, we're still trying to build our system, but I will say that um, one of the things that's been very helpful as far as trying to meet the needs, the unique needs of children who are here, um, who are not necessarily um, natural English speakers, who are of limited English proficiency, is having good relationships with outside partners, such as our educators. That has been a huge plus in helping to build the system. And there was a lot of funding as a result of COVID, there's ESSER funding and I've been involved with with dealing with some of that, but and not to digress, but one of the things I saw was this real enthusiasm to be able to use those funds to benefit this particular population um, because it will allow for greater services to them. And so I think having outside supports if you're trying to build internal capacity is very helpful um, just to get sort of a a view of the, the issue from multiple sort of perspectives. Again, we're six months in, so we'll see what happens.
0: Thank you, thank you. Um, we've got several questions about deportation. Uh, one is asking: uh, Have any of you done work specifically addressing the impact of deportation of a parent on children? What issues do you have you observed? What approaches have you taken to address those issues? We have. Another question asking what happens when a parent is deported? What does it mean for the child? Might it result in the termination of parental rights? What role do you all play?
2: Yeah, so that is probably the worst case scenario for someone who's in the child welfare system when you have a parent who is deported. Um, It is, It is heart-wrenching because a lot of those do end up in TBR because once they get deported, at least here in South Carolina, we seem to have a almost impossible time of trying to locate them in their home country. And we're still not really doing a good job of engaging those parents while they're still here and kind of stressing the importance of, of their responsibility to keep the agency. Notified as far as where they are and how do we get in contact with them. So, um, deportation is certainly is a very very negative factor when it comes to a child in care in South Carolina as far as uh, TPRs.
4: I might just echo what um, what Andres said during his presentation that um, you know we actually we actually don't. Really, see a lot of cases in New York City of youth coming into care specifically because of deportation. Um, so it might be that a youth comes into care um, through an abuse or neglect case, and then, um, you know, like also has the parent might also have a deportation case. But, um, you know, more typically, if the parent is deported, um, there you know, in here in New York, we have uh, something called standby guardianship, which can be put in place to name another. Um, a trusted adult or family member to be the guardian for the youth, so that would prevent the child from needing to come into um, into foster care. And we really, um, you know, along with the mayor's office of immigrant affairs, promote standby guardianship um, as a way of, ca- of planning and uh, safety planning. Um, and uh, we we also have um, you know a law here that um, can kind of extend the time. Um, on a TPR of the parents in immigration detention, so that it does not need to be done in the same time frame, similar to if a parent is um, incarcerated. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously, a deportation has a huge effect on, on, a, on a child, but it is not um, it is not a, a, a very common reason at all for coming into ACS foster care.
5: I, I just wanted to add to that and say, as I said in my presentation, we don't have a lot of we don't have a lot of children coming into temporary agency custody based upon a deportation. However, for parents who are deported, most of the time, um, because a lot of our families are straddling the border, where we have one parent in the U.S., one parent in home country, that's been a, a more similar situation. Um, now, with the priority deportation priorities changing. Um, we, we do have parents who have orders of deportation that have not been executed, which means they have an order of deportation, but they're still within the United States. Um, we have had parents in home countries who have been previously deported. It has complicated, um, it had, it has added complications for them, uh, for reunifying with their children. If, if they've tried to come in, um, uh, without inspection and have been, uh, federally prosecuted for legally re-entering the country. Um, but it, it is. In New Mexico, it is it is not a. There we try we try to still work with the families as much as we can. Um, we we you know we we will try to work with them to the best of our ability.
0: Thank you. Um, we'll only have time for a few more questions. but We'll get through as many as we can. We had a couple of questions about uh, circumstances where the parent or relative, maybe in another country. One person asked, um, how do you approach permanency planning when there's a goal of reunification in another country? And someone else asked, can you uh, just explain what the purpose of consular notification is and what the importance of it is?" You know, and and what I would say in, in this area, because we've got a mix of um, you know child welfare people and immigration people likely listening to the call, if somebody sort of just wants to explain, so how does this work when the parent is in another country?
5: I can explain like very generally uh, on my end. I, I'm in a very limited capacity as the immigration attorney on my team. Uh, But within our child welfare agency, we do, um, we will have the parents served in that third country. We typically will work with their consulate um, to have them served in the third country. We also have a third party nonprofit that we work with to help um, facilitate not just service of parents in third country, but also if there's a home, if there's a home study uh, or home assessment being completed, they will assist with that as well. We have worked with uh, DEATH, which is a child welfare agency in Mexico. We work with child welfare agencies in, in Honduras as well. Um, so that is sort of an overview of, of how, of how that, that process works here in New Mexico.
0: Um, uh, Andres, there's actually a specific question for you, which is, can you say more about how New Mexico built a program for non-citizen relatives to become licensed uh, foster parents. This is from a state that is struggling with this uh, issue.
5: I would be happy to pass that along to my director uh, who has more uh, details in regards to that. Um, I, I don't want to misspe- misspeak without without
0: her being present. Okay, that's. And then, Eliane, a question for you, um, just asking, I think, to clarify. Um, uh, um, ACS is an entity separate from Child Welfare Services in New York? Is is New York City, is that right? Uh, um,
4: ACS is, is the Child Welfare Agency. Uh, New York State is a county-run system, so ACS is the Child Welfare Agency for the five counties that comprise New York City.
0: And then a question um, potentially for all of you. Um, because of the increased numbers of unaccompanied children arriving this year and being placed in emergency sites, uh, has that posed additional challenges for you uh, in uh, seeing children coming into child welfare or in other ways?
4: Well, I would say one challenge is that people often think that they are in ACS care. They don't understand the difference between, um, you know, federal care under the Office of Refugee Resettlement and state child welfare. So there's a lot of confusion in the public about, you know, where where unaccompanied minors are. Um, New York City has a really um, does have a very big um, program for unaccompanied minors uh, through contracts with the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Um, and many of the nonprofits that we contract with also have um, programs that, uh, that, separately, that are completely separate but with the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Um, we haven't seen, I, I don't think we've seen you know, a direct strain or anything on our, our resources, but it's definitely something that we're aware of and when we can provide um, support or expertise or anything like that, we'll always uh, reach out and support them.
5: Just to echo that here in New Mexico, our entire border is um, comprised and and lumped in with El Paso, Texas. So it's considered the El Paso, Texas sector. So any unaccompanied minors that are encountered along the New Mexico border are um, detained by Border Patrol and then referred to Health and Human Services. They do not remain in New Mexico. New Mexico does not have a a facility for unaccompanied minors currently. and, and so it really hasn't been a strain on, on resources in, in that regard. There have been um, cases where unaccompanied minors were reunified, were reunified with sponsors and there were just typical abuse and neglect claim, uh, claims that came up. And you know our investigators would have to go out and investigate. but, but that, that's sort of outside of the purview. And lastly, similar to what Elians was saying, uh, we, we have had to uh, redirect. Uh, individuals who think that uh, unaccompanied minors are in, are in our custody and care, and they are not. Uh, we will direct them to Health and Human Services. There are also some nonprofits like Vecina in, in Texas that work very closely with reunifying, reunifying unaccompanied minors to, uh, to sponsors.
0: Um, I, I think we've got time for one last question. And this is, uh, several of you, um, maybe all of you mentioned in, in your comments the importance of working w- with children who are eligible for special immigrant juvenile status. And the question here is, um, uh, how are you addressing situations where um, children and youth are in the backlog, where they've got uh, their SIJ um, application approved, but they cannot get a green card and they're awaiting the green card. Um, and the, the the question, are you keeping a dependency open until the green card is issued? What are you doing in these cases?
2: Yeah, so I would say in, in South Carolina, because we also have a state law, which basically prohibits us from uh, expending any sort of public funds on an undocumented individual over the age of 18. Once they get their application approved, we have internally determined that child or youth to be here. Um, lawfully and so they were given them the option of remaining in care once they turn 18 um, mm-hmm. that's our interpretation and unless someone tells us differently that's how we are dealing with it
4: um I say yeah this is definitely um, this is a very big question um, and I think you know maybe, could be a whole other panel at some point, you know, discussing just this issue and how it's affecting child welfare agencies. Um, we, um, so if if the if the, the child welfare case and the um, immigration case will be separate, and if there's if the child is going to reunify with a parent, what the we'll work with the immigration attorney to find a different form of dependency on the family court, so they could transfer from, um, com- you know, an abuse or neglect case to become. A guardianship case or a direct placement case, so um, they don't need to stay in our foster care system for the special immigrant juvenile. They can, uh, you know, be released if if that's what's in their best interest. Um, but if they are in foster care and they they are not going to be reunified, um, one area that that um, will happen is that um, if they are visa retrogressed and they can can't apply for um, housing, uh, you know. NYCHA housing because they don't have um, their their green card yet. Um, we can uh, allow them to stay in care past twenty one um, on a case by case basis, um, and we you know we have several of those youth right now who are waiting for their green card to become current. Um, and it, you know, it's uh, we're we're hoping that it'll get sped up soon.
5: In New Mexico, there is extended foster care um, at this time. The children who are in the backlog, are, they're, they're, they're probably, hopefully, going to be out of the backlog before they turn 18. Um, more importantly, uh, that I see with our 16, 17-year-old, they want to start working. They want to start working. They don't have the work permit. So we've tried to have wraparound services for volunteer uh, to increase their, their life skills, increase what kind of skills they have so that when they get a work permit, they are able to be better prepared uh, to go in. And start working. Um, that's that's how we dealt with it in New Mexico.
0: Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, the, at, at this point, we need to bring the webinar to the close. Uh, I want to first thank all of our panelists and thank our colleagues at APHSA. Uh, we hope you've found the presentation and the discussions today helpful. The audio from. The webinar will be available on the MPI event website tomorrow. If you're a reporter on the call and you want to follow up, you can contact Michelle Middlestad, M I T T E L S T A D T, at migrationpolicy.org. And as noted at the beginning, we do have uh, our detailed report, and then the infographic, which provides a sort of uh, broad uh, checklist-like approach to thinking about many of the issues um, and encourage you to refer to those. So again, thanks very much, everybody, and very best wishes to all. Thanks.